The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Of course, we'll be talking about the unfolding events in Afghanistan this week. They have the whole world right now on edge. Here in Australia, the first Mercy flight carrying Australians and Afghan interpreters touched down in Perth early this morning. They will go into hotel quarantine after escaping the horrors of Kabul. World leaders are blaming one another for what looks like a catastrophic leadership collapse in Kabul, with some describing it as a humiliation of the United States. Now, we may be witnessing a global shift away from US power. Australian citizens who remain, along with local Afghan staff who supported Australia, are now in perilous danger from the brutal Islamist Taliban after the slow evacuation operation. The Taliban now has control of Afghanistan. Last time they were in power, they banned music, they cut off the hands of thieves, they barred women from education and jobs and stoned adulterers. They persecuted and sometimes massacred ethnic minorities. So where does that leave Christians? Christians at this time in Afghanistan will be especially vulnerable. In the past 20 years, since the US led liberation from the Taliban back in 2001, there has reportedly been a revival of Christian faith in Afghanistan. We might wonder what that looks like and how things are now at threat. Our special guest through this coming hour is Elizabeth Kendall, International Religious Liberty Analyst and Advocate. She serves as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome along to 2020. And thanks for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, this is being seen as the beginning of a new era of great geopolitical instability. Is that too big a way to talk about the things that have happened over this past week in Afghanistan? Oh, no, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. I think um, I think it's, it's like a massive earthquake, really. We've seen uh, Amer- the American-led West, and particularly America, has just been left uh, with egg on its face. It has proved that it is no longer this uh, power that, that can control situations, that will stand by its allies. It has just withdrawn at the, probably the very worst time. It's it just withdrawn at the, at the peak of the fighting season uh, against all the um, recommendations and all the advice of defence and intelligence uh, it's all very difficult to understand, and it's been an absolute catastrophe. 
Uh, I think some fighting will pick up. There's resistance mounting in uh, the Pangea Valley and some other places. But I think uh, we're in for a very, very uh, interesting and difficult time. I don't think it will be long before other countries um, either rise up on the back of this, like Iran. We might see Iran flexing its muscles now in the belief that, oh, America is weak and doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to make a stand anywhere. And we might see the resurgence of uh, major terrorism because al-Qaeda is still in Afghanistan and still closely tied to, uh, to the Taliban. As you say, the US appearing to be left with egg on its face. And there are not, uh, not everyone in the world is a friend of the US. There are lots of anti-Western powers. Uh, you mentioned some of them, but China and Russia, Iran, Pakistan, Turkey... Uh, they'd be in some sense here, and I wonder whether it might even be too great an exaggeration to say, you know, in the sense of, uh, you know, rubbing their hands together with glee because they've got their own agendas to pursue where America might have been a blockage or America and its allies, and let's include Australia in that. Uh, What are your thoughts here, the idea that anti-Western powers could be celebrating? Well, I think they've all got different agendas, and I think... I think Russia, while it might be quite pleased to see American arrogance uh, put in its place, so to speak, will have a completely different agenda to, say, China. So um, uh, the Russians are very, very anxious about the escalation of terrorism uh, in their backyard and amongst their, you know, the former Soviet, in, the, in the former Soviet sphere. So they're already working along the border in Tajikistan and, um, and Uzbekistan to try and uh, shore up uh, the borders, to make sure that terrorism doesn't start leaking over the borders. They're talking with the Taliban about trying to get the Taliban to agree, and China's doing this as well, to agree not to sponsor Islamic terrorism into their territories and into their backyard. And this is especially uh, significant for China because there are many Uyghur terrorists in Syria and in the Caucasus and in, uh, and, and in, in Afghanistan, and they fight with al-Qaeda, they fight with Islamic State in Afghanistan, and they're trying to get an agreement from the Taliban not to sponsor these groups, but to, but to keep them repressed and to, and to fight these groups. And, and China especially is offering Taliban, I think, uh, benefits through its Belt Road Initiative and through investment and, and um, you know, all sorts of uh, a building infrastructure works and everything if it will promise to keep Islamic State and the Uyghur terrorist groups uh, under their control, uh, uh, you know, completely repressed. So uh, it's going to be interesting and you just we're just going to have to watch and... Um, I think for Christians, I think we need to be praying for this tiny little church that's deep underground, um, a church born in suffering uh, in its infancy now, uh, built on, on the back of some unbelievably courageous um, Afghans and some courageous missionaries going uh, right back. It's a, the story of the Afghan church is incredibly interesting. It's fascinating, and I'd love to share that with you today. 
We might see if we can get on to that. But in this initial part of our conversation, uh, there are very big losers uh, with the rise Mm. of the Taliban coming back to power. I wonder if you've got any thoughts around uh, the biggest losers. Well, obviously, women are going to be a big loser. So the Taliban, uh, they've become a lot more sophisticated, but they're not so sophisticated that we don't now understand the language they speak. I think most people do now. They might not have 20 years ago, but they do now. So when they say women will have all their rights in accordance with Sharia, well, we pretty well know what that means. And especially uh, in, in the Taliban's Islam, which is not a, uh, a liberal Islam, it's a fundamentalist Islam, right into the to the Sharia law, going right back into the the you know the eighth century. Uh, we're talking about um, Muslim women, Afghan women, not being allowed out of the house, uh, not being allowed out with outside, or to do anything really without a male uh, chaperone, a, a relative, a male relative as their chaperone. Um, you know, it's going to be a terrible situation for women. Anyway, but especially for women who over the last 20 years have, have had got an education. They've, um, you know, they listen to music. They want to, you know, go out and have a coffee in the evening with some friends and their lives are different to what they were, you know, back in warlord days and, and, uh, 20 years ago. You've got a, a generation of young Afghan women now who are engaged politically and who are teachers and who, work in, in politics and in media, and um, they're going to be uh, really in the firing line. So women and children, uh, the ethnic minorities, because the Taliban is a Pashtun movement, um, and it's mostly ethnic Pashtun, and that's on both sides of the Pakistan border. And so there's a lot of persecution against the non-Pashtun and a lot of resistance comes from the non-Pashtun, from Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazara, who also happen to be Shiite. So the Hazara are Shiites, and they're really severely persecuted. Most of the Afghans in Australia uh, who have come here as refugees are Hazara Shiites. It's never, if the Taliban are active anywhere in Afghanistan, it's never safe to send Hazaras back to Afghanistan. They have been horribly, horribly persecuted and killed primarily for their Shiite uh, beliefs. And of all the people groups that are coming to face in Afghanistan, uh, amongst the Afghans, the Hazaras are the most receptive. When you say some of those uh, terminology for a lot of listeners, uh, you know, a lot of new terminology in there, but you mentioned the Pashtuans. And they come out of Pakistan. I wonder whether you've got a very brief, in a nutshell, uh, foundation for where the Taliban comes from. Because, you know, when we talk about the Taliban and you talk about ISIS and you can talk about all sorts of jihadist movements, and there's lots of them, uh, whether it's the Middle East or whether it's Indonesia or whether it's uh, a number of African nations, the Taliban in themselves, how do they compare with these other sorts of groups? Uh, because uh, you've got a, a way that you can talk about how the Taliban came to be. Well, the the uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State are both what we would call transnational jihadist movements. So they have uh, jihadis from all over the world 
seeking to impose Islam all over the world. Uh, the Taliban really is a, ta- a, a Pashtun movement of seeking to uh, unite the Pashtuns so they, they would really reject the, the, the Duran line, that Pakistani border that the British drew right through the middle of the Pashtun people that separates Afghanistan from Pakistan. So, and you have to realize that the Taliban really is a Pakistani proxy. So the, the pa- Pakistan created the Taliban and they created the Taliban so that Pakistan could have strategic depth into Afghanistan. And so what they did was in their madrasas, there's thousands of madrasas that are all unregulated all over the western portions of of Pakistan, especially the northwest, through all these madrasas, they have created talibs or students to take the to fight in Afghanistan uh, as really proxies of Pakistan. So you can absolutely guarantee when you look at the way the Taliban seized power, it was brilliant. It was so strategic. It was brilliant. They captured all the rural areas and the countryside slowly and hung on to it. And then they moved on the, on the border crossings, which basically put Kabul under siege. They choked off all the border crossings on every country, all around the country. Then they encircled the capitals and then they ca- the provincial capitals. Then they slowly captured them until Kabul was completely isolated. I do not believe, for all their brilliance and skill and maturity, that they could have done that without the Pakistani intelligence services. Wow. Um, Yeah. So Pakistan is deeply involved in this. Pakistan, the foundation for what the Taliban is. Now, we talk about the Taliban and uh, we're seeing them in the media, press conferences, and they want the world to think that they have changed because they had a very strict and austere interpretation of Sunni Islam when they were in power last and now making all sorts of promises uh, with that condition in accordance with Sharia. What do you think, Elizabeth, about uh, whether you can trust the Taliban to say that they will change because there's some talk about them aligning themselves with how the Saudis have changed and somehow rather bringing their Islam into a, a modern era. How should you approach that? Well, there's, there's a bit, bit of a yes and a no to, to these questions. So I think that they will embrace everything that China has to offer them and that the Taliban will seek to present themselves as a legitimate government they will seek to uh, they will seek legitimacy, so they will seek to have countries recognize them as the legitimate government of, of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan or the Emirate, whatever they're calling themselves, the Islamic Emirate of, of Afghanistan. They will seek to have a presence at the United Nations and, and all this they will put on their robes and go to beautiful conferences in Doha and and they will meet in talks with people like like a legitimate uh, you know, a, a government, and they will grab everything that China offers. China will offer with to um, to come in with their Belt Road Initiative to build roads and airports and everything, uh, and to start mining their you know rare earth minerals and other things. 
And I think the Taliban will take all everything it can get and and try to improve its image that way. But not one jot or iota of its Islamic Sharia will be sacrificed for that. And, um, you know, I still, so I believe that it's going to be sort of maybe a bit like China, where you have a communist government that is as repressive as ever, as repressive in terms of freedom of speech and belief and everything as Mao was during the Cultural Revolution. And yet it's capitalist and it's, um, it wants money, it wants tall buildings and it wants to be seen as a progressive developing city. So I think they're going to do probably play that game a little bit and you know which is what they're doing in Saudi Arabia they're keeping everything they're keeping their Islam very strong while they're trying to bring in the money uh, and it's all about money you know a biblical perspective on life culture and current events this is 2020 on vision christian radio 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Our talkback line is open. You can also respond to today's Facebook question. The 2020 question asks, how perilous do you think the fall of Afghanistan is as the Taliban returns to power? You'll find that question at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Let's take some calls. Shelby is in Brisbane. Hi, Shelby. Welcome along. Hello, Elizabeth, and hello, Neil. Mate, um, what a fantastic subject. Mate, um, I am horrified, along with a lot of Christians, um, let alone women, for the Christians in Afghanistan and the women. Because um, the way I see it as well, that these poor people, there's um, over 30,000 people trying to get out of um, this land. We're seeing the terrible things where they're trying to hang onto a plane and they're falling to the death. But the thing what really bothers me is the fact that we there's 109 countries watching this but doing virtually nothing. And mm-hmm. um, we, as Australians, we need to step up and ask our Prime Minister because I'm led to believe that these people can be given... They've already got soldiers that have vouched for them and given them paperwork and clearance as, as interpreters. There's about 800 of these people alone, let alone the other people that want to get in that have helped. And the thing is, um, the application can be given to them um, through diplomatic, so this, um, this is parliamentary, um, diplomatic, um, and other various human rights organisations, um, you know, could give them the... Um, Shelby, you're saying there's more can be done uh, to support those who've been our own allies, our support workers in Afghanistan. Uh, Elizabeth, any thoughts for uh, for Shelby? Yes, yeah, thank you, Shelby. Now, I think that the biggest, the biggest problem at the moment is, for, from what I can understand, is that, is that the Taliban actually controls the entire outside perimeter of the airport, uh, Kabul airport, so you can have all the papers in the world that, you know, testifying that you, you know, served the United States Army as an interpreter or anything or worked with the Australian forces. You can have all the proof you like, but you can't get into the airport without going through the Taliban. And this is really what's sort of so bizarre to hear um, American officials saying, well, get yourselves to the airport because they what they're saying is you have 
you have to get yourself to the airport. We can't rescue you. And, of course, they can't. They can't rescue you from your home in the suburbs. They just can't. But they, the trouble is these people can't get into the airport without going through the Taliban. So the Taliban, at the moment, I think they are letting foreigners out, but they're not letting Afghans out. So the Afghan is, is left with this problem. Do I go up to a Taliban checkpoint, take out my papers that show that I was allied to American forces? Because that's immediate death. So they, the local Afghans are in a diabolical situation and the, the, the facts on the ground are they cannot even get into the airport. Shelby, thank you so much for your call. Let's see if we can squeeze another one in before news. Michael's in Mittagong in New South Wales. Michael, need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, uh, Neil. Um, my friend uh, in uh, Reno, Nevada, is listening to this program. She's an American. Uh, this is the, one of the greatest failures of the American military in our living memory, I believe. Um, the British couldn't shake the uh, Afghan army uh, 100 years ago. The Russians tried. They couldn't. America has had 20 years of trying to beat the Taliban. What made them think that they could, by arming the new militia, defeat the Taliban? Um, Joe Biden should resign in absolute shame. Uh, the American military uh, really got, as Elizabeth said, egg on their face. It's uh, a monumental disaster for the world, for the free world, mm-hmm. with China on the other side of the border watching how America conducts itself. Well, Unbelievably embarrassing. Elizabeth, I wonder whether we can touch on Christians in Afghanistan right now. You have been reflecting on these. In fact, uh, you were writing two months ago about the slow withdrawal of people before uh, the date that was set. Uh, your insights around Christians in Afghanistan, there's been a bit of a revival over the past 20 years, even though that might still look fairly small. Yes, well, it's still small because, you know, is, Afghanistan is a very Islamic country and has been for a long time, although it, it was ruled by communists for a long time as well. And it's interesting that during that communist rule, um, there was quite a lot of development, a lot of development that was then smashed when uh, the, the Taliban and the war, well, firstly, when the warlords came to power, but then when the Taliban came to power. So it's got a really interesting history. But during the last 20 years, um, since the Taliban was ousted uh, 20 years ago, of course, has been like a, a window of opportunity has opened up. You've got you've got more, uh, you know, European and American uh, working in the country as contractors as in with NGOs, with humanitarian organisations, as teachers, as diplomats, and there's just been more people, you know, just rubbing up against Christians, more Afghans coming into contact with Christians. So there has been growth of Christianity, especially in Kabul, during the last 20 years. Now, there there was a an incident in May 2010 when mobile phone footage of a mass baptism in Kabul was leaked and it was shown by a local television station and it caused an absolute eruption. It caused the government to want it to to vow a crackdown on apostasy. It caused an exodus of 
significant Christians especially, and especially the ones who were in the, in the footage, uh, they fled to, uh, to India. And uh, there's quite a sizable Afghan community in New Delhi, a uh, Christian Afghan community in New Delhi. So they fled. But there was a, it was estimated in 2013 that there could be between 2,000 and 3,000 Christians in Afghanistan uh, deep underground because, you know, Bibles are contraband uh, and you cannot be an apostate. It's just not acceptable. You'll be killed. So what happens is that the Afghan believers, they use VPNs or virtual private networks that, that scramble uh, signals so that you can't be traced. They use these VPNs to communicate with each other uh, over the internet. And um, quite a few of the, the leading evangelists and you could call them underground pastors and, and leaders of the Christian community in Afghanistan uh, Afghans who fled the country uh, into Pakistan and became Christians in refugee camps in Pakistan, where Christians and Pakistani Christians ministered to them and encouraged them and shared the gospel with them. And quite a number of them decided to come back to Afghanistan and to go to go underground and to encourage other Christians and to evangelize to the best of their ability. This is courage that's just phenomenal. As you and, say, um, there are incredibly amazing. courageous Afghanis who have been able to establish some level of uh, the Christian church in Afghanistan. I do note uh, that you say there's three types of Christians, the ones who've been exiled, the ones who've been forced to operate underground, and those who are dead. There's not too many choices yeah. in that, Elizabeth Kendall. No, there's not, and there's quite a history of martyrdom in Afghanistan, and of um, you know, and and of oh, just strong Islamic Islamic resistance against the church. So Afghanistan has not been isolated from the Islamic revival of the 1970s. You know, the, that Islamic revival that started percolating in the 1960s. And we saw as it culminated in 1979 with the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the uprising in Mecca and terrorism in Egypt. You know, this resurgence of fundamentalist Islam uh, came to Afghanistan as well. And, you know, and that has changed the landscape. It has made it very much more dangerous. So the resistance has been there for a long time. But, you know, as in, as in Iran, sometimes that cruelty and the misery that it causes is what actually makes people stop and say i don't want this anymore i mean that's what they're finding in iran they're finding that the islamic government has done more for the gospel than just about anything people are so repelled by fundamentalist islam that they are willing to look at something else something that gives offers life and hope and freedom and grace and all the things, the, the absolute polar opposite of Islam becomes a light in the darkness. And this is something to continuously pray for in, well, in Afghanistan. We should never make the mistake of thinking it's a hopeless case. It absolutely is not. And um, people have shed their blood in Afghanistan for Christ and they have lived and prayed in Afghanistan 
And uh, this is not a country that God has abandoned. Absolutely not. And we need to pray that uh, God will take this and that something wonderful, uh, greater than what we could ever ask or even hope, Ephesians 3, might come from it. Elizabeth, let's change tack a little here. Uh, Coming back to... You know, who you can trust in all of this, because sometimes we'll uh, set ourselves as Christians to say that uh, there are good guys and there are bad guys. Uh, But uh, there are these things that we could identify as being proxy wars and Afghanistan, a prime example of that, how that's worked over the years with the Russians, how they were uh, at war in Afghanistan and uh, where the Americans were in all of that. How do you describe the idea of a proxy war and whose side, uh, US or Russians or China or whoever it might be, and uh, we might even put ourselves in the picture here as, uh, as allies of the US, how do you describe these ideas of what's happened with the proxy wars in Afghanistan and what that might mean for our understanding of current situations? Well, you know, the situation in Afghanistan is, is you could always, you could almost say it's a, consequence of the Cold War. So during the Cold War, um, you had this situation where uh, in Afghanistan, you had a communist government. Uh, the communists had come to power in military coup after coup after coup. And you had a communist government and it was backed by the Soviet Union. And so America was pretty keen to draw Afghanistan out of the Soviet sphere of influence. Now, when Islam started to rise, the communist government in Afghanistan sought the help of their Soviet allies to put down an Islamic insurgency. So it actually wasn't a Russian invasion like it's often portrayed. They were, they were invited in to help put down an Islamic insurgency. And America saw this as an opportunity to fight the Russians in Afghanistan. So they backed the Mujahideen. They backed they backed, you know, basically the, the people who went on to become the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and everything. So they backed the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen ended up with all these wonderful American weapons. And of course, over time, they've turned those weapons on the Americans themselves. So the empowerment of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan came right back to this idea of a Cold War proxy war where instead of really thinking hard about who you were backing, the only thing they were thinking of was who they were fighting, which was the Russians. And boy, I wish they'd just stayed out of it, you know. And, and of course, Afghanistan is not the only country where we see this. We see a similar thing in Ethiopia. In fact, this is yeah. in fact this is a developing situation right now. And uh, while the focus of the world is almost solely on Afghanistan, uh, there is a situation developing in Ethiopia right now. I wonder if, in a nutshell, you can describe what's going on there, because this idea of a proxy war this is being played out there as well. Yes, it is, and you know this sounds ridiculous, but if um, after what we've been watching on the television, but If Ethiopia collapses, it will make Afghanistan look like chicken feed because Ethiopia is the second biggest country in Africa. We're talking about a country with a population of 110 million people. Well over half of them are Christians. 
and belong to one of the most ancient Christian cultures in the world with 2,000 years of Christian history. And uh, it's just incredible to think. So what we have in Ethiopia now is, is a war between the central government, which believes in a strong, prosperous, united Ethiopia that is, uh, you know, that is good for all Ethiopians, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, the Prime Minister is an evangelical Protestant convert to Christianity. His name is Dr. Abiy Ahmed, right? Born to a Muslim sheikh, uh, and he's a convert to Christianity. And he is the Prime Minister, and his vision for Ethiopia is embraced by most of Ethiopia. The, they, they are fighting a war against ethnic separatists. Uh, from the Oromo Liberation Front and from the Tigray People's Liberation Front. And the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, this is a Marxist group that was empowered by the Americans during the Cold War. And the only reason America backed the TPLF in the 1980s and brought them to power was because the TPLF was fighting a Soviet-backed Marxist group. So they switched one lot of Marxists for another lot of right. Marxists. So you've got but this they were tension. Our Marxists. Yeah, it's like they were our Marxists. They yeah. were our bad guys. It's just, and now the trouble is that America is still backing the TPLF today. Right. And this threatens, this threatens the integrity of Ethiopia and millions and millions of Christians. So when we talk tensions between America and Russia, in some sense, those tensions are there and existent in proxy wars that we've been able to identify over these past decades. And uh, this is an interesting and uh, powerful idea to raise because uh, listeners will be shocked when you say that it was America that was backing the Mujahideen uh, when the Russians were invited into Afghanistan to resist them. So you had the Americans backing the Islamic militants, arming them, and then that has grown into the Taliban, which is now threatening the whole world. So America, even in that sense, uh, really a, a dreadful place to be uh, supporting uh, that group. And the same thing happening now, as you say, as a developing situation is going on in Ethiopia. Uh, with this uh, group in Ethiopia, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, Americans backing the Marxists. Uh, so in some sense here, you know, this is where I guess having a religious alignment is a very powerful way to think about how you take sides because it doesn't seem to be the Americans are looking at religious alignments at all, Elizabeth Kendall. No, and I think it's, it's a... It's a it's an idea just based on complete and total ignorance of Islam. So if, if, the, if, we, if we witness the collapse of Ethiopia into chaos, we're going to see um, Islam in the Horn of Africa will just will be on steroids. It's just going to be absolutely terrible. So Ethiopia has long been known as this Christian island in, this, in a sea of Islam. And there are Islamic jihadist groups in Somalia and elsewhere already recruiting for jihad in Ethiopia. They want nothing more than for Ethiopia to fall into chaos. 
Uh, Egypt wants to weaken Ethiopia. The Sudanese military, so that's the deep state of Sudan, the Islamist deep state, wants to weaken Ethiopia. And uh, America is back in the TPLF today still because of, of its ally in the Middle East, Egypt wants to see Ethiopia uh, weakened, but it's disastrous. And, you know, I would actually take this whole, this whole disastrous policy sort of thinking of, of, backing, of backing Islam and backing groups that are going to be killing Christians. I could go right back to the Crimean War when Britain and France decided to enter the Crimean War on the side of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Russia had crossed the, crossed the Danube River, River to defend Christians who were being slaughtered by Turks. Slaughtered. And they had the right to do this. They'd won the right through Catherine the Great, had brokered a treaty that said Russia was, had permission to intervene whenever Christians were being slaughtered in, in the Balkans area there. So they had every right to come in. Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, decided, oh, we'll, we'll see if we'll see if um, Britain and France would like to come and you know uh, uh, fight the Russians with us. And they invited France and Russia to come and fight on the side of the Ottoman Empire, and they did. Uh, and, and we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing it for so long. And you know, sometimes I think. You know, I hear people saying, oh, the West is under judgment because of our, the home, our acceptance of homosexuality and abortion and everything. And while those things are bad, I tend to think, what about our, our decisions through centuries that have left, led to the massacres of Christian peoples, wow. the betrayal of the Assyrians, the turning our backs on the Armenians, the, the, the betrayal of the Papuans in West Papua and now in Ethiopia. I mean, this goes back a long way. And I think if the West is going to be under judgment for anything, it might be this. <laughs> Elizabeth, let's take another call. Catherine is on the line from Esperance in WA. Hi, Catherine. Welcome. Good morning, Neil. Thank you for having me on. I just want to thank Elizabeth for keeping us informed we don't hear this in the press. And I, I just want to say that I think the US have lost their way from Obama onwards. They're a socialist government and almost post-Christian now. And under Sharia, women have no rights in Afghanistan. And I just want to alert people. There's a book by Mark Drury, The Third Choice. And it, it, it really discusses Islam, the real truth of Islam. But I think our answer is in prayer over strongholds over Afghanistan for centuries. And I, I wonder, Elizabeth, how we can help the Afghani underground church. Good thoughts, Catherine. Uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts? Well, that's a really hard question, Catherine. I think those sorts of, that sort of information will slowly start to leak out as people start to make connections and as mission groups start to make connections with Afghans who are still in the country. I think, I think uh, finding out something about the Afghan Christian community in Australia and supporting it, supporting mission to Afghans in Australia uh, is really powerful and helpful. Um, I, I, I don't even know what groups actually have access to insight 
But, you know, the Bible tells us and God tells us not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And even though we would love to get some money in, we would love to do a whole lot of things. I think it's going to be extremely difficult. And we just need to be on our knees praying that God will protect his people, that God will amplify their message that God will open hearts and that we might actually see percolating underground or we won't probably won't see it for a while, but one day we will discover that while the Taliban has been out there killing, raping and murdering, that underground, uh, away from the sights of anyone, a church has been growing and the Holy Spirit has been moving. Catherine, all I can say from my end would be I'll try and keep an ear to the ground because I'm talking to Christian organisations, mission organisations, those groups that are supporting the persecuted church and undoubtedly they will be looking for creative ways to support the underground church in Afghanistan. And so uh, I'll keep an ear to the ground and we'll see what we can do over the weeks ahead as to how some of those sorts of initiatives might be able to be supported by Australian believers like yourself. Catherine, stay strong and uh, keep those Afghani Christians in your prayers. Thank you so much for your call. Um, just uh, only a few minutes left in our conversation, Elizabeth. I wonder whether we could turn our attention just for a few moments uh, to Australia. I mean, uh, terror alerts, uh, empowered jihadists around the world. Uh, are we under threat here, do you think? And perhaps not immediately, but will there be forces who will be re-empowered by what's going on in Afghanistan? Uh, could that have an effect here in yes. Australia? Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt about that. I think um, I think China will feel emboldened and I think we could start to see an escalation of pressure on Taiwan. I think Iran will be emboldened. We could see the uh, tanker wars uh, getting, uh, you know, getting inflamed in the Gulf. We could see all sorts of things and, and in Syria as well, Iran in Syria. I think there'll be powers that will be emboldened. Uh, Afghanistan will become an al-Qaeda haven just like it was before and it's quite possibly just a matter of time before we see another uh, major terrorist attack and possibly uh, numerous significant terror attacks around the world. It might not happen tomorrow but I think it's going to be on in, even in the near term I think I would expect to see that. And the way we might pray Elizabeth and uh, you know Catherine from Esperance uh, talking about prayer for those Afghan Christians but how do you think we ought to be praying what value is there for the believer listening to our conversation today thinking I might add that to my daily prayer points about how I might approach this how do you think we ought to be praying well God Christ has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so I think, I think we need to just pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work and that he will preserve his people and that he would magnify their message and that he would open hearts to receive the gospel. And um, I, I really, I don't know, I almost find it difficult to imagine anything can really get in, get in the way of the Taliban's program at the moment. But I think that God can be amazingly work. Oh, and the other thing is, you know, we talk about, you know, the disaster of the loss of American power, and it is a disaster. Uh, America has been, and the West has been a great advocate for a long time 
for freedoms and human rights and religious freedom. And now we're going to go into a whole new era. And But the only reason you'd be really terrified and depressed about that is if you don't believe that God is going to, in the years or decades to come, do something phenomenal in China. That's about the end of the Communist Party. And it's quite possible that all those roads that lead to Beijing that are being built now might one day be being used by uh, Chinese Christians. And uh, the situation could change. The situation could change dramatically if things changed in Beijing. And I believe that God is going to do that. So my hope is never exhausted. (laughs) And when we think about how we might pray, there's a certain uh, optimism in the way that listeners will have heard you expressing that, even though things do not look good. Uh, there is this hope and expectation that God has a way of turning around those things that have been used against him and his people uh, to be used for the good and the growth of the kingdom. Uh, Really wonderful insights. Elizabeth Kendall, International Religious Liberty Analyst and Advocate. And uh, I might say Elizabeth is an expert on the things that we're talking about today. Uh, She has written a couple of books to draw attention to, and at a time like this, all of a sudden, these books become very, very important. Uh, One that offers a biblical response to persecution and existential threat, one called Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today. Elizabeth's second book was After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Uh, ElizabethKendall.com is Elizabeth's website and you can access Elizabeth's Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin uh, through her website, ElizabethKendall, that's Kendall with one L, dot com. Elizabeth, just great getting your insights as always and important insights once again. Thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.